Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I've got grade school questions and a million dollars to give away. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Let's go. Get ready. One of the most popular game shows of all time is coming to Audio Up as a podcast. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a call from an inmate at the Indiana State Prison. My name is Phil Chalmers, and I'm a serial killer profiler. How many murders are you responsible for? 36. 47 to 52. I found Sister's killer. I want to see him face to face. Listen to Where the Bodies Are Buried, a true crime podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find the ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Live from the Dream Hotel in Hollywood, California, this is Lips LA. Hey guys, welcome to the show. It's Scott Lips. You're listening to Lip Service. We are coming to you live today from WeWork. As you guys know, we are located in the WeWork offices here. We do our podcast from here about once a month. I love this space. I can't speak more highly about a space. The whole idea of WeWork is people, they're in entertainment, coming together in this PDC Green Space. So we're in here with Imagine Entertainment and with LiveX Live and some other very, very cool companies. I love WeWork. Thank you for hosting us with this podcast, as always. And coming up on the show today, we have Patrick Hawk, is actually my co-star on the show. Patrick is, his, uh, in his own right, a great uh, filmmaker, photographer, and all-around great guy with a vast knowledge of film and TV. Uh, he's a real true character and a great friend, and uh, excited to have him co-host the show with me today. We have Burt Marcus on the film. Burt Marcus is a producer and director, has done a ton of films. I think most notably you would know him from American Meme, which was about the rise and uh, the sort of the dark side of social media. So we're going to have him in here in just a moment, and uh, welcome to the show today, Burt Marcus. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about a product that I wear religiously, Thursday's Boots. And I'm sure you guys have seen me in many posts wearing Thursday's Boots, talking about Thursday's Boots. I love these boots. I only actually own one type of boots, and they are Thursday's Boots. Thursday's Boots are actually launching a new brand, a sneaker brand called Nothing New. It's actually coming out June 27th, and the whole idea behind Nothing New is centered around the idea of sustainability with style. It's actually really, really cool. So they have six low top and six high top colors. 
Uh, the Instagram is at nothing new. The website is nothingnew.com. And they're all made from recycled plastic water bottles, which is number pair. It's pretty cool. Um, I love this brand. I, I'm really into what they're doing. The whole idea about shoes and sustainability. And um, this new brand is, is going to kill it. Nothing new. It launches June 27th. And go pick up a pair. Thanks very much. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Bert, welcome, by the way. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, bro, Great good to setup. have you here. Um, we were just saying that you guys are both from L.A., which is very rare. Yeah, yes. I feel like most people that say they're from L.A. are, are from like Rancho Cucamonga, Temecula, Corona, <laughs> <laughs> places I actually have never even driven through. You know, Patrick, is like a, Patrick, by the way, is like an L.A. historian. So, I mean, he can tell you, <laughs> literally, the guy will reference like stories about every actor. He's got tons of stories, so we can get into all that stuff. But, by the way, nice to have you here. I, I actually first met you. Can we talk about how I met you in that film, or is that still like a secret project? Uh, it's still kind of a secret project. Where okay. We have, <laughs> okay. It's, well, it's, it's, it's a, we can say that it's a, it's a modeling project. Okay, so on Secret Project A, yeah. the modeling project, I met you because you actually interviewed me for an unspecified project that will be coming out sometime soon. Yes, sir. But the tables have sort of turned, so how does it actually, I know you've done some interviews, but does it, is it weird now because you were like interviewing me for hours about uh, stuff, Yeah. now I, we have you here, so it's interesting. It's always interesting. I actually... You know, my background's radio, so I actually used to host radio shows and uh, did, was an on-air correspondent for many years for Clear Channel, which is now iHeart. So right, my right. background's actually radio, so it's good to be Yeah, I want to back. talk to you about your whole background. And, and the interesting thing is I think people's journeys and, and stories and how you get to become a successful producer, director, and your company. You know, the, the films you've done, me and Patrick, we're actually just taking a quick look through your whole IMDb Pro uh, discography, I guess. Is that a discography of its movies, or is that a, uh, what would that be referred to <laughs> I don't know to how as? you call it. You know, um, a list. A list. A list. But uh, uh, pretty impressive, and congrats. I think most people notably know you. We did a little intro before you got here, so we talked about a lot of your things you have going on, but most notably American Meme recently, and I want to talk about your journey and how you get into directing and producing, and you came from music initially, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. So let's talk about how you started, how you got into it, how you ended up here, how you've ended up doing probably eight or nine movies, uh, and that whole path and journey. I think it's a pretty fascinating story. Yeah, I mean, my background's similar to yours. I was born and raised in L.A., which was uh, always interesting. I feel like this town's a little bit like squirrels chasing nuts everywhere, so... It's always interesting. Squirrels chasing nuts. Yeah, I have, I'll be using that soon. Well, actually, I've already trademarked that for a script, <laughs> so just be careful. Um, no, so we it, it does feel like that quite a bit, you know, especially being from here. It's kind of like, where do you go? Because I feel like a lot of people come here to whatever you want to call it, make something of themselves, uh, figure things out. And that's a great part of L.A., but it's also a tricky part in the sense that, you know, you look for real relationships and real people. So it's always been uh, tricky. Um, and growing up in LA, I actually, I don't know if you found this, I kind of didn't want to be part of the entertainment industry because... No, not initially uh, at all. Okay. Yeah. yeah initially for me, I, I had the opposite reaction. Mm -hmm. I went to a school called Buckley and it was um, kindergarten through 12th. I was a lifer. Um, actually, that's where I met Paris originally. Okay. Um, yeah, we've known each other since kindergarten. So we'll talk about your Rolodex, you know, later on. But you do have an illustrious Rolodex for sure. Well, what's what's interesting is so that school like kind of made it so that I didn't want to be part of the entertainment industry. I kind of wanted to do something different. You know, everybody kind of wanted to become famous for something, but not. You know, really. going to school in LA is it like everyone wants to be in Guns N' Roses or be Spielberg or? But I don't know what was it like. I think I most of their parents already are those right. people. So <laughs> <laughs> I went to I was in the Valley, so I didn't get that. I got like kids that wanted to play basketball at Reseda High School, like Reggie Miller. 
Oh, I'm see, from that's a different world. But that's me. See, basketball yeah. was my life. Oh, yeah. You should have been in my school. I, 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 <laughs> I keep saying that. You know, yeah. which famous kids were in your schools? Um, I mean, I'm sure you had some. Right? I mean, a couple I, I'll, I'll mention just because I'm, I'm, I love them and I'm close to them. Is like Nicole Richie, Paris, people, people of that nature. Cool. Yeah. So but, you actually went to school with Paris. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. We, uh, we've known each other for a long time, and and and. Like I said, I, I kind of grew up like loving music, loving sports, and anything I could do in those worlds was was my goal. Basketball was my life. Did you uh, make a? Was there a conscious sort of uh, decision when you were younger? You know, music was your path, or did you at some point think film might have been your path? No, I never thought film would be my path. Actually, I I, I didn't even think about. I, I love storytelling. I love character development. I love telling stories. I love watching movies. I watched everything. I, I was a I was a huge uh, I was a huge fan of a lot of different producers and directors and and actors growing up. But I never actually thought I would be doing this. Was I, there a genre that you got into? Something that? What was the first film that? Ferris like, Bueller's Day Off this. was like my yeah. first, you know, that was my intro of like, what is this? Uh-huh. Who's this guy? I identified with him. You know, with a name like Bert, you need all the help you can get growing up. So, uh, <laughs> you know, Ferris was definitely my, uh, my, you know, my idol. Mm-hmm. I, I looked up to like how that character was, was made and, and I felt like it was such a timeless film mm-hmm. and one of those films that just struck a chord with so many people for so many different reasons. So I would say that was like the first movie I really was just like, Wow. Um, and so long story short of it, I started working in radio when I was like a teenager. I, I, I got a job over as an intern, um, at Clear Channel. Wow. And so and I loved me. Was like Stern someone that you idolized? Oh, yeah. I figure if you were from the East Coast, you could not get away from Stern. It was like all things Howard Stern. I, even here though. I who mean, was the yeah. West Coast Stern? Who was our, who was the big guy K-Rock was when the you big. started? K-Rock was big. I mean, you always had Kevin and Bean and you had like kind of the more old school guys, but Howard was definitely somebody I always sure. thought was brilliant obviously and it's funny because when you do this now and obviously i've been dabbling in this for about a year and had some great guests on and you guys have been doing this for quite some time too you realize man howard stern is the greatest interviewer of all time oh how do you get to be that good like he's just but he's also been doing it for four years i would say ed bradley but i'm weird well yeah i mean you have your own (laughs) charlie rose who are all those references you gave me before besides one i don't know you said you should check out these guys well yeah i was saying look at ed bradley ed bradley was the doctor he was 60 minutes you know and then there's charlie rose later but Ed was the one that did the Muhammad Ali piece of course. and all those. I think he's the guy. Uh, he's well, Howard's, yeah, no, there's no taking anything away from Howard. It's just I'm sure Howard would tell you he likes Ed Bradley. Yeah. And now we got Scott giving them all <laughs> a run for their money. Yeah, it's over now. Um, but, but, but besides that, so you kind of, you were into storytelling and you were into music. But what kind of bands were you into growing up? I mean, obviously Nirvana and Pearl Jam were right. probably, you know, right up there. All those kind of Seattle bands. I, I, I just love. I have a strong connection to Nirvana. Yeah, you know what that is? I think I, I can guess maybe. Well, because I just I play drums with Courtney Love. I know you told me that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's my connection. Dude, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Dave Dave Grohl's a, a genius. I think probably the best drummer of, of at least my time. You know, and I will not argue with that. Um, and I also like uh, the drummer from um, Nine Inch Nails, Alon Rubin, um, mm-hmm. is pretty phenomenal. Um, one of the best concerts I've ever seen. Uh, but I digress. Um, they are too. I yeah. saw them at the Bull as a kid. One of the best shows I ever went to. N- no question. One of the best shows I've ever seen. Um, so Nirvana and who else? Would you, were you into? Growing up? I, I loved. I loved Nirvana. I loved Pearl Jam. I loved Nine Inch Nails. I, I was a. Um, I, I just loved different all all genres. To be honest, I loved '80s music. When I, you know, one of the first gigs I ever got was hosting an '80s show. So I mean, I was. 
didn't really like grow up obviously because I was a child in the 80s but even even 80s music I always gravitated towards I just loved every every genre to be honest and I still do I love everything from rock and hip-hop and country you name it I'm into it but because of the storytelling aspect or just because you were just a no I just guy? I just loved I just loved music I loved music and sports those were my two passions if I was you know when I'm watching these guys were like they they ear pods and they're playing basketball it's like that was, was your I, team was it the lakers or no i was definitely a, i was a michael jordan fanatic jordan I was Bulls. A, yeah well i grew up in la so i was a laker obviously fan sure. i used to do ball boy for the lakers actually you really were yeah well who was playing when you were there uh it was back in the day i had like the in-between time of like the greatness so i had um sedale threat Anthony Peeler, Pig Miller, Vlade Divac. Um, Divac was my favorite because he was a chain smoker. At halftime. I mean, this guy would literally cross his legs. Like, I you don't know, they, they told him once he was sitting outside waiting for a girlfriend to pick him up and he had smoked a half a pack of cigarettes and the, and the commissioner and everyone says, like, you can't sit out front and chain smoke. The kids are seeing it. It's bad. Oh, he would sit like you're sitting right now and you can't see it, but his legs are completely crossed, just living the life. And yeah. he would literally put his, his elbow on his knee and smoke a couple cigarettes at halftime. In, in all transparency, when you guys start talking about sports, I'm like tuning out because I know nothing about sports. So. Blocking it out. Not, this problem. I, I, I need to know. There was a small game on last I know, there's night. There's a Raptors you thing. I, all I, I just see it on social media now. I'm like, music, film, fashion, food, travel, any genre I can pretty much hold my own. But sports, I've never. got to bring him to a game. My, my brother went into yeah. sports when I was a kid and I went into music. We were like opposite ends of the spectrum. But so at some point you sort of. You know, but you sort of transitioned from music to film, right? And and what was that like? And and what was your first foray? Because I think the process of becoming a producer, director, raising your, you know, financing a film, you know, raising money for your first film—that's something that you guys obviously know a lot about. I'd love to know how that whole process works and and how you sort of transition from music into film. Yeah, I mean, I think I have an extremely unorthodox kind of path. I definitely didn't do things the way I think most would do it. Um, I, like I said, I, I worked in radio for a number of years through high school, through college. Um, I went to USC, so I worked at a full-time job all the way through college. And I was a music major at the Thornton, Thornton uh, School for Music at USC. And then I had a joint major with uh, business and Marshall. So I definitely film. I had a lot of friends in the film program. I never thought I was going to go in that direction. It was something I, I loved as a fan, but it wasn't something where I was like, oh, I know how to make movies. Um, what were the movies that were inspiring to you when you were growing up? I think I had, I mean, I was, I love Wes Anderson. I'm a big Wes Anderson yeah, fan. I think the re director. the reason I love Wes is how original and unique his storytelling is. I love, you know, Stanley Kubrick. I love obviously Spielberg. I was uh, a big fan of, of Lucas. I just loved anyone who had like an imagination and was able to tell a story in a fresh, unique and original way. I loved anything that didn't feel like too produced, but had kind of a raw feeling, but at the same time told a story that yes I may be familiar with you know characters like this but I've never been I've never heard it told in this particular way and Patrick, that was yeah. I was gonna say Patrick were those some of your I have a similar and not similar like I I was in Los Angeles doing underground nightclubs and I would hit the Hollywood kids up for work they would they would ignore me because I was successful at clubs so they'd be like why do you want to do a movie you got a thousand people in the room you know like kids like Chris Peters who was you know John's son doing Batman so I go to New York City when I'm 16 years old um, because I'm seeing an older girl. She's like, they're doing music videos here. You should get into this. And I started my world with, uh, it was Gangstar oh, right. uh, music video. And then I started directing like gangster rap videos. 
and that leads me into narrative. Which so ones? It's it's very weird. I've done everything. I've done like a lot of Alicia Keys and the Deftones and you know Ben Harper. And um, I, when I was um, an assistant director, we were doing all of EPMD, all of Cyprus, all of House of Pain. Um, pretty much, I worked with a kid named Kevin Bray and David Perez, who were like, you know, the early days of what, what Hype Williams would be or all these kind of things. So we had a company called Hex Films, which was uh, pretty much one of the only four companies in New York City making music videos. Yeah, Bert, so, did, was that ever a path that you were oh, music to music, film? Because music videos and your background in music, it would seem like a natural transition. Did you sort of, What was your first project that you sort of got into producing or directing? Well, before before I even say that, I want to quickly say I, I was obsessed with music videos growing up, and that Let's was go. that was you know I, Hype Williams wasn't he great? Oh, he was uh, incredible. Hype is is new school. Like I, I'm talking about the the beginning of it. You know, that's mm. just when we would call ourselves directors, and we used to be able to do things like go to Forty Second Street, shoot seventy people, hold a uh, hold a permit up, and just pan it, <laughs> and you were in the video. The rules were different. I, mi- I miss those later videos in the world. Those were fun because we were allowed. You know, no one knew what was going going on there wasn't like a lot of interjection of politics it was more like you know with kill a man or these kind of videos it was just like we want to do x y and z and no one was around to stop it or figure it out you know i remember in jump around the kids were pulling out guns and firing them in the air and an <laughs> interior bar you're like that's a bridge too far you guys got to chill out a little that's bit but it's not cool not it's real um yeah i had a blast but gangstar was the very like the very i did like five of their videos and they were like you know that was my era. Yeah, if I could have done music videos, I would have done them. I, was I thought, that ever something that you It was you lucky. Were... It was a lucky break. Oh, I thought they were. I mean, I was just growing up, you know, in the, the, the late 80s, 90s. I mean, everything was music videos. Yeah. I thought that was like the, it set the precedent for pop culture and, and, and just culture in general. I thought I, it was. I was lucky because I got to learn and play with all the utensils that would lead to a narrative film. Yeah. You know, yeah. you got to experiment with motion control or, you know, cranes or you could do, you know, the budget started getting crazy at one point. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, it was 20 grand. 30 grand then all of a sudden it's like I did a Missy Elliott Little Mo that was 1.5 wow Wow, that's incredible. I mean, it's, yeah, it's like a joke, now, right? They're like, what do you mean? I think the budgets are now $8 They're $10. For yeah, where do you even watch the videos now? I don't even know. Yeah, you know, I've been tuned thing. out. I know Canada had that What was that channel Canada had that was like their MTV? That was a huge uh, much deal. music much music. Yeah, yeah, much was like a big fighter. I don't know how I knew that. I remember when MTV kind of, and this this goes into you, which is it leaves its format for things like, you know, these new projects of reality yep. and all this stuff. And they're like, we're getting better reviews. We're never turning back to TRL. I know. You know that moment happened. I, I used to work on TRL actually during the summers. I worked for Carson on, on TRL. And, and those were uh, some of the times that I... I cherished at MTV because it was like just even seeing like thousands of people in Times Square this was kind of the peak of that and it really created this this hype for people and and, and interest in new music and yes it was very kind of pop culture-ish but it definitely was a, a unique thing and now when I go there it's like there's just billboards for Teen Mom like be it's pregnant crazy, at 14. Yeah. I wonder the last time MTV actually played music videos, what year was that? I remember I had I, I got pervy to a really nice meeting and a meeting that I couldn't believe, which was they like all the production companies met in a room with the head of MTV and they basically were giving them a very not so subtle note that they were not going to be working together anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really weird. It was a weird room. I think it was at uh like 
not milk, but coyote stages and all, right. all of these propaganda and Fincher and everyone's like, what's going on? And they're like, we're kind of enjoying the ratings of, you know, this yeah, I missed those genre. Days, I think it was the real world was the first show that kind of kicked yeah, it off. Yeah. One of them. Yeah. That was it. Again, some uh, useless bit of information. I think now it's like what Spotify, if you, you chart and you trend there, you go. And yeah. if not, you don't. It's just like, true. Yeah. So, so at certain point, you were like, I guess your your path was like, I want to get into film. Yeah. And uh, and it just seemed like a natural transition from your love of storytelling. But how did you raise the money for your first film? Well, I think so. What I decided to do is uh, documentaries at the time. This is probably like two thousand nine, so about ten years ago. Was something that you know the, it wasn't the popular thing that it is now. I think documentaries have gained a lot of traction from all the tre- streaming services. Sure. They're a lot more accessible to audience members. Whereas you know, ten years ago, it was very no, difficult to go yeah. find it. Do- you even said the word documentary. There was a yeah. stigma immediately it's like attached. You're broke. Nothing. Yeah. There's no money over here. Let's move on. <laughs> well, I love documentaries. So you you know you're, t- you're preaching to the choir i definitely it's a genre that i fully embrace but your first movie was actually 2008 columbus day was it not uh well i just helped put funding for that together uh, with some people that i knew my first the first film actually um took part in was actually um uh, a a film that we did uh that we premiered at sundance took the hbo called teenage paparazzo and we did one after that called uh, how to make money selling drugs. But let's go back for one second. Yeah. So your, your first, even if you helped raise money for yeah. Columbus Day initially, how do you get into that, right? Because for kids listening that are like, I want to get into film, I want to yeah. be a producer, director, how do you, I mean, you don't just call up your five friends that have money and say, I'm making a movie. They're like, well, what do. background? Or no, you, you kind of do, <laughs> actually. Do you, actually. Do you, so, yeah. I mean, they're like, what Scott, other movies do you have you made? money? We might do yeah. something today. <laughs> I think it's a very, like I said, I took an unorthodox path in the sense that I was a music and, 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 and business, with a music and business background. And then, I love the idea of obviously coming in and being able to tell real stories. That's why documentaries were, you know, appealed to me. Um, I think the first thing that I decided to do was, okay, how do, how do I structure something so that these aren't just one-offs? And is there a business model here? And use kind of my business background of how do I set up, you know, some investors who are interested and like-minded with the projects that I want to make, which were the, the slogan of my company is films that matter. So the idea was that every time like we have a project, the idea was character-driven films, films that have a message, are socially conscious, but done also in a commercially viable way, a way that can be profitable and marketed to the masses. So I'm saying you might be pushing the envelope a little bit, like in the case of American Meme, it's a bit of a dark take on where social media has gone, in a sense, right? For sure. Um, For but, sure. So you, do you just call up your five friends so, that have money? And yeah, so, so, like, so not going to film yeah. school, not having any family. I've never had a family member in the, in the, um, in the, in the, in the business. I, did, I, I had no kind of connections other than the fact that a lot of my friends were in entertainment, and that was just because I knew them since I was a child. Um, and they were all, you know, most of them, was, their connection was really their parents, uh, people in their family, and then some of them were child actors, you know, some of my best friends and uh, old roommates and stuff, you know, were in hit sitcoms when I was a child. So, you know, they're, but I didn't have any connection other than they were like my best friends, you know, we would cause trouble together. We didn't have any kind of business thing to together. together. Sure. So, so I think my, it was a little bit different. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a manager. I didn't have any kind of connection in that world either. And so for me, it was like, okay, how do I, how do I kind of 
find stories that haven't been told or I don't think have been told and, and tell them in a kind of a fresh, unique perspective? And how do I find investors who are also kind of like, wow, this is this could be an interesting uh, business venture and telling interesting stories, but also telling them in a way that, you know, is not formulaic, that is kind of breaks the mold of what's been done and kind of roll the dice. I think with documentaries, you have the advantage of the fact that the budgets were not high and you're in a situation where you can hopefully at that time, you know, break even, become profitable, and then have people invest in the next thing. And so I kind of put a group together of people who we said, okay, we're going to do, you know, X amount of documentaries. We're going to keep the price, you know, the, the budget's low. They're, these are kind of the genres in which we're going to explore and, and the types of subject matters that we want to delve into and then find people who were just genuinely interested in it and and had kind of um, and, and saw the vision of like what we wanted to do short term and long term. So what were the budgets for uh, budget wise? Was it they a were, three million dollar budget? for No, 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 no. Back back 10 years ago. I mean, you're talking about like a couple hundred thousand dollars. Okay. So and you could make a great documentary for that kind of budget. You, I mean, this is calling every favor that you possibly <laughs> could. This is also having, a, you know, a, a connection in, 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 in music and, and being able to contact certain publishers and get commercial music, um, being able to contact talent, being able to craft a story with people who would, you know, do things at 50% discounts. It doesn't matter what their job was. And I guess the good thing is you actually have to pay, what do you pay someone, scale or just SAG or after? Like if they're a celebrity and they're doing a documentary, you don't have to pay them an enormous fee. Well, we've actually never paid a celebrity in a a film ever. Right. So that that actually takes away a lot of the budget too. Yeah. And it jeopardizes kind of the integrity of a project if you want to get something that's real from them or if you want to get something that's that's um, that you know is not fake or something that they're making up the the whole idea is to have the integrity of the project so we purposely don't pay people and we try to find people who the subject matter is something that is like extremely important to them and, and has a very personal uh, effect on them we should point out that most of your movies have a celebrity quote and uh, a lot of them have uh you know, you did a movie with Mike Tyson. You did yeah. American. A lot of these movies actually have great cameos. So whether it's Susan Sarandon, Woody Harrelson, Paris Hilton, Emily Ratajkowski, Mark Wahlberg, how do you get all these people? To, I mean, I, I want to get to there, but actually, it should be mentioned because you've actually had some great people in all these films where it's not just you know a specific genre and a very specific uh, doctor talking about sports medicine or whatever it may be. These are major celebrities that don't. You can't just call them and, hey, Susan Sarandon, I want to come to my movie. She, she's going to want to see a list of your credits and, and want to know that you've done legitimate projects before. So you've had great luck in attracting some great talent uh, in a lot of your films already. Yeah, I think the key is really finding, you know, whatever subject we're going to delve into. It's like, how do you find talent that is uh, has a, a very strong personal connection to what it is you're you're doing. So uh, any of the the talent that we've dealt uh, dealt with for the various projects, they're people who have been dramatically affected by the subject. So whether it's it's something like boxing, whether it's something like social media, whether it's electronic dance music, uh, with what we started, a film I directed for Netflix. It's like the whole idea is once you kind of sell your story to the to the to the talent explain this is what we're trying to do this is the arc of the of the film this is how you know i'm a fan of them each person that we've reached out to and this is um how i kind of saw their involvement and then more importantly i want to get their opinion on you know how 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 has this world affected them and what's their role in it Um, and a lot of them actually have been really enthusiastic about doing it it hasn't been it's never easy i would say but it's definitely once you're in kind of talks with people, I think they, they start realizing that we want to have a very personal side of them and have them share a side of themselves and a story about themselves that 
people don't know. Sure, sure. And so I think that's like the appeal for them is like, okay, people can see a completely different side of me and see a real side of me and one that's not kind of doesn't have like a facade up there. And it's really like it's raw, it's personal, and it's something that um, that people don't get to hear. In 2010 was actually your first movie. I think, Patrick, you know one of the guys that was in Teenage yeah, Pop Friends with too. Austin. Visca- oh, yeah, I love yeah, Austin. I still talk I to Austin. I used to see him around as that yeah. little kid, and then as he as he got older, how did you, how did that one come about? How did that, that's a, a real beginning for you, right? I think in the, yeah, like I said, we had kind of a slate of docs. That was the first one that was going to come out. Uh-huh. Um, and it was, it was, uh, first of all, Austin's great. He's, yeah, uh, he's yeah, a cool people, kid. Yeah, people don't know. He was this 12 year old at the time when we met him. I think he was 12, 12 and a half, 12 year old paparazzi kid that we would see. I'd be at Koi, I'd be at random restaurants on, you know, La Cienega, West Hollywood. And at that time, if you went with any sort of an actor or anybody with any sort of, you could go with Carrot Top. Doesn't matter. I love Carrot Top. We all do, man. <laughs> he's, he's, he's ripped. We, uh, we, we we would see like a group of, you know, paparazzi was really kind of taken over at that time between 2007, 2010. And that was kind of like the big thing in Hollywood is before social media, before people had their camera phones. And it was something where it was, it was no matter where you went, there would be a group of paparazzi outside a of it. A big group. That if was there was the, anybody. The heyday. Yeah, any restaurants. Yeah. So definitely had that three-year period. And, and in that, you would see this little blonde, you would see a bunch of old guys that yeah. are like hairy and sweaty and fat and... Just the same yeah. usual suspects that would be running, like, running people over and just causing havoc all over Hollywood. And then under that, you would see a blonde-haired kid with, like, you know, hasn't gone through puberty, very young. And he would be kind of squeaking his camera through. And you're like, immediately, who the hell is this? And, like, is he okay? Because they were, like, aggressive. Right. You know, this kid was How just— How did he even get into that? Crazy. You know, and and that was kind of like I did a podcast where he told this whole story. Yeah. You know, as a kid, but it's like the mother used to hang out in the scene, and the mom was like, "Bring a camera," and she introduced him to Paris when he was a little kid, and he asked her instead of a photo, he was like, "Do you want to go on a date with me?" He was That's he was a, aggressive. Yeah, I think you know he Austin was the type of kid where twelve he, year old asking Paris. Yeah, he's like, "What's up, girl?" You know, <laughs> right. she's like, "Huh?" Oh yeah, I mean, his camera was bigger than him. I mean, literally. <laughs> yeah, and that's so, a funny story. So he would be under the uh, you know all these all these grown men, and then it didn't matter who it was at that time. At that time, it was really like Paris and Lindsay and Britney and the kind of those people yeah. running all. They turned Robertson into like the Cannes Film Festival if they want to buy a shirt. <laughs> right. It Kids was unreal. And, yeah. and so he would be there, and people would be like, "Who?" Who are you? And normally they're trying to get away from the paparazzi and not looking at them. And in this case, they would walk right up to him and just be like, Fascinated. Who, who are you? Like, what? And he'd be, here's my business card. Call me. And they're like, a business card? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think I had business cards at 12 years old. Yeah. I mean, so his mom, like like you said, had kind of a, a connection in, in, in Hollywood uh, to a certain extent. And it was kind of this ironic thing, especially for me growing up in, in L.A., it was always interesting, this idea of fame, and it kind of, you know, le- led to even what you see with the American meme. Um, this idea of people wanting to become famous. And, it, you know, back in the day, people, you know, you want to be a lawyer, you want to be a doctor, you want to be a musician, you want to be an athlete. It was like you had to perfect a craft and be great at something to succeed and become famous. And in this case, even in Austin's case, and this was like an early, um, you know, dictated kind of w- what we're seeing now even – he wanted to become famous by taking pictures of famous people. And if you think about it, that's like the ultimate paradox. It's like, what are you famous for? Well, I'm famous for following famous people. And so, you know, he was 12, he was homeschooled. He would be out till two, three in the morning. He had a driver that drove him to all the places. So he'd go to a nightclub (laughs) and a driver would stop, let him out. 
he would then go on a scooter, like go to I have whatever. Have to revisit this movie because I actually did see it. Because it's yeah. funny when we were looking at your yeah. the movies. Yeah, it was a long time and, ago. Yeah, but yeah. I have to revisit it because it's an amazing story. Actually, he's making crazy money for a kid too, wasn't he? Oh, he, he was, was like, pulling in like yeah. a lot of cash, yeah. and you know, I don't think he saved a lot of it. But no, he, was, he started living. I like you said back to the paradox. He started living the style he was documenting. Yeah, you know, I was like that. That kid Austin has a house. That Austin <laughs> kid has like ten girlfriends up at the house, and you're like, like a, what? A house in the hills at like 14 yeah, he started or rolling big. It's crazy. No, he was he 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 was an anomaly, and he's yeah. uh, he's a good kid though. I still keep in, in contact. Yeah, he's with a him. good heart. Yeah. Ironically enough, I went to have coffee with him. Patrick was there having coffee with him, and his Austin's girlfriend is how I. She actually has a foundation called LaBelle Foundation. That's how I got my puppy. Oh wow! So there's it's all one degree. And the of separation. mom, the mom has like half of this building actually for her right. clo- for her brand. It's crazy. Nice. So, mother. What kind of puppy? Uh, I got this amazing. He's here. He just got neutered, so we won't uh, bring him in right now. He's <laughs> suffering a little bit. <laughs> what kind of dog? If that was humans, we wouldn't be so happy. Um, he's a mix. He's kind of looks like a bit like a, a mini golden, but I'll bring him in. And I have a, I have and, a golden. Let me, yeah, he's yeah, amazing. His name is Milo. He's great. He's awesome. Wait, how did you get? How did that fund? How did that one go through? Like the step by step of, yeah, so, of it. So what I did was I had a, a group of friends mm-hmm. who I would say, okay, everybody like put X amount of money. I had a lot of friends who, you know, did well out of college. They everybody kind of was interested in entertainment, like like we see, you know, there's something very sexy and fun about the entertainment industry, as we mm-hmm. all know. Um and I think it's something where people didn't want to be like two feet in and, and, and lose all their you know. So what kind of money were they investing? Was it two fifty? Was it fifty thousand? Was it ten grand? It was different for different people at that time. Sure, um, but it was like a couple. It was like a couple hundred each. Um, at the time to put together a group, yes. Okay. Yeah, and, and so then we would like, disperse hey, Bert, it. If you lose my money, this is re- really you know you'll hear you'll never hear the end of this. Was it like that kind of conversation, or was it more? I trust you. You can take my two hundred grand and do whatever you like. I like like what you're doing. I believe in you. Or did you have those conversations with people? Because these are, by the way, I've raised money before. It's yeah. not the easiest thing in the world. And asking people for money for me is not something I've ever liked to do. No. So were you into that aspect? It's a very of degrading it? feeling. Yeah, actually, it's a strange thing to do. But but what I did was I we did it in a very different way. So as opposed to just going to people and begging for money on projects, it was like okay, here's kind of a business plan. Here are a slate of projects that we're looking to do to delve into. This is how we're looking to do them. This this is how we're looking execute them, market them, so that before we even started or spent one dollar, there was like a, there was a definite plan behind uh, various projects. And then yeah, like the, a PowerPoint or something. It, it was uh, it, it was a deck. Yeah. yeah. What were yeah. in the uh, what was in your initial deck besides paparazzi? Um, I had like four projects that mm-hmm. we were going to do. Did and you end up making all those? Yes, projects? really. Yes, yeah. And, and so the idea was like, okay, this is this is what we're going to do. These are the price points about. This is like who we're going to target, and we were lucky to get a lot of those people. And this is how we want to tell this story. Of course, documentaries take a life of their own, and you end up start filming, and it takes you know you discover a lot of it in the edit. And a lot of it, because it's real time. You're not making it up. You can't script these things, nor did do you, you want to. Did you put together Adrian with the project, or did he come Adrian to you no, no, he, the project? No, no, he was working on that project. So okay. he, he, he was working on that project, um, and I think it, they were at a very early stage of, of kind of just following Austin, to be quite honest. And it was like this this interesting thing, and I, I had known Austin a little bit um, and obviously seen him around, and I immediately was like, this kid is, you know, he, he's a symbol of something, especially that related to me personally being from L.A., um, where I was like, wow, like this, this is a, a very, like I said, a, an interesting way in which to tell a story. It hadn't been done before. It was unique. It was fresh. It was low budget. It was a small type of film. And, you know, we were lucky, you know, HBO picked up the rights and, um, you know, it did well, but 
it, it definitely was like the first of its kind for our generation because, you know, there's a lot of things documenting paparazzi and pop culture and celebrity culture. There but, wasn't then, no. That, that was a weird, different film, Yeah, right? I mean, there have been in the past, but this was just done in a, in a different way. And like mm-hmm. I said, I always look for stories no matter what they are, whether it's teenage paparazzo, how to make money selling drugs, you know, champs, what we started, the American meme. The, the idea for me is to, for each of these things, we're not like recreating the wheel by kind of trying to find out, you know, about these, about these worlds. But what we are doing is we're telling them through very unique vehicles and they're told through people that haven't opened up in the way that, that they have in these films. And the idea was to come up with like a very fresh take. So vision wise, would you say it's more fly on the wall or would you say your take is more just really uh, delving into that person's perspective of what the, you know, what that genre is. I mean, what, how would you see that your, your style of documentary is different than other people's? I think for me personally, and and what I gravitate towards and, and why I love doing what I do is it's always great to, it's a mixture of both. I definitely come in as a filmmaker with a very strong point of view and a story that I want to tell. And and every story has to have a really strong arc. I'm really into characters, character development, and making sure that these are people that, you know, are going to be very raw, vulnerable, open, honest, and it doesn't feel contrived. It's not something that's, you know, they're a talent for hire or someone that we're a celebrity we're paying to make a quick cameo. It has to be something that's really like to the core, like affects these people. Otherwise it's like window dressing. And so, for me, it was, yes, I do have that perspective and I have a strong story that I do want to tell, but I always leave myself open as a filmmaker, especially with documentaries, to allow people to tell their own story and be a fly on the wall. I do love that aspect of it, the, the verite aspect. I yeah. don't love talking heads. I don't love watching movies where it's just, like you said, a bunch of experts coming in and sure. weighing in on something. It's so much more fun to like watch people who... They're, they're, it's a personal experience. It's a personal thing that no they're questions. sharing with you, and it's it's unprecedented access. And what you're selling with a lot of these documentaries is access, quite frankly. Um, and, and I would say, just speaking from experience, when I did the interview with you, I could say that you almost like, I wouldn't say pushing buttons, but it's like, let's talk about something real. Let's get a conversation started and maybe open up a conversation where you would go there where other people wouldn't. Is that a correct assumption? Oh, yeah. Assumption? I think as a filmmaker, you yeah. want to push the envelope and you want yeah. to, you, listen, we're not TMZ. It's not trying to like be, do something that's salacious by any means. But what we do want to do is make things very personal, real, start real conversations. And the only way to do that is by, you know, is by breaking the mold and not doing things so formulaic and kind of cookie cutter like a when, lot of things yeah. are done. When you were doing meme, were you doing the off-camera interviews? Was I did that, everyone. Yeah. So you do all that. I Even do. if you don't take a director credit because you produced, right? Yeah, I produced some for the American meme. I wrote, directed, and produced it. So I did everyone for the American meme. But like other films, it would be mixed. Um, we would mix them up. So depending on who, you know, we're low budget. So say, you know, a director I was working with was in New York and I'm in L.A. And I knew some, I would do the interview. It just depends. But Focusing on meme, did you have, did you kind of know a tone that you wanted to strike? Or did you get it inspired by the tone when you were interviewing people, what you were feeling about it? Both. Both. I definitely had a perspective and a personal perspective on social media and this idea. What of, was yours at the time when you approached yeah. it? I think the idea that being from L.A., like like I said, the squirrels chasing nuts, nuts aspect where mm-hmm. it's like no matter who you are, everyone like wants to be famous. They want to mm-hmm. be known. They want to be recognized. And I think it came from. It, listen, at the end of the day, it's very simple. It's this universal need and want to be loved. And I think that's like the theme of the American meme that it makes it universal and something that anybody in any broad audience can relate to. Mm-hmm. We were in 192 countries. It was, you know, Netflix is, you know, 
top doc last year, we were told. And I think what's great, what's great about it is that even if you're not on social media, like I said, that need and want to be loved is something that we can all relate to. I can, I know I relate to as well. And this idea of like even being noticed and recognized and having what you say actually matter and having people give a shit about you. I mean, I think these are all things that um, resonate with a lot of people. And I think I did have a perspective early on of like what I wanted to tell. And it, I was never on, I've never even had a Facebook account. So I was never on you were you never know, in that mix. I was never in that mix, yeah. kind of purposely. Mm -hmm. I didn't like people messing with, you know, there's a lot of people who just talk about a lot of people and, and kind of getting each other's business. And I've already dealt with that in this business quite a bit. And it's just not for me. I'm, I have like, you know, my five friends and my family. And then I, yeah. you know, I, 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 I keep my head down and, and I do my thing. But in that regard, I, I, I started to see all these people like, you know, and it became this phenomenon, people just making tons of money. You'd have no clue who they are. They have X amount of followers. It was like, how do you even get these followers? How did you get these sponsorships? How do you? And I was kind of fascinated with it. So I wanted to kind of find out about it, not from like a negative perspective, but it didn't it to me was interesting because I've known Paris a long time yeah. and I've seen the iterations of Paris. I've seen the difference between kind of alone time speaking to her dad mm -hmm. in front of a crowd and there's a lot of Parises. I, I don't know if you agree with that, but For sure. this one seemed to be cool because she had a chemistry with you, and she also is at another place than a lot of people in your documentary are with it. I felt like that was getting exercised in the film. For that sure. That tone and her clarity. I don't think she's ever been the same since she did jail time. And I think she had a real, you know, awakening, so I think, to speak. Yeah, yeah. By the way, let's let's yeah. talk about the movie for a second, yeah. right? Just sort of jumping forward. So the movie, if you haven't seen it, follows Emily Ratatowski, Haley Bieber, the fat Jew who I work with for many years. I love Josh, one of the funniest guys ever. Paris uh, and Creel. Um, and, and it's a take basically on it's sort of a day in the life of what it was like building their brand and social media. Some may say, as we talked about the dark side of social media, how, you know, when the lights are off, they go to their hotel room, they go to their house, whatever it may be. It, it's almost a bit depressing after they've been in this sort of chaotic environment and they're alone and they're like, hey, you know, it's not like it seems it's all an optical illusion. So is that sort of what you wanted to convey with the movie? Because it is it's very timely. Obviously, there's no hotter subject in the world now than in the last few years in social media. So what did you want to really say with that movie? And obviously it was, it was very successful. So the point got across, people tuned in, and congrats on the success of it. But yeah, what in your eyes, like, what did you really want to convey with the movie, I guess? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think that we have noticed a massive cultural shift over the last few years. You've definitely seen um, people, like I said, if you ask a group of kids or you ask a college, like, what do you want to do for a living? You're not going to hear the typical things that you heard back in the day. Um, you know, I want to be a scientist. I want to be an astronaut. You know, a good majority of the people are like, I want to be an influencer. I want to be famous. Right. Or they and, want to do yeah. Uber and peace out. I want a billion dollars <laughs> on they want Monday. To be a, they want to be driving an Uber and then tell yeah. you they're a director and they want to They want to do what help, you do right? in 10 seconds. It's instant <laughs> gratification. That's the world we live in. Mm -hmm. And and I think it was an interesting world to explore. I wanted to come at it as a filmmaker in a completely non-judgmental way, you know, and that was my goal initially because I knew it was a very polarizing topic. I knew some of these people just off the top, if you say Paris Hilton, the fat Jew, immediately, you know, critics and people of that nature will kind of like roll their eyes and just be upset because they feel like these people haven't put in the work that they should have. And what I wanted to do was show the real work that they do actually put in the, um, you know, the inner workings of this world that we all know about and we hear about, but we don't really get to see on a day to day basis. So I picked kind of some protagonists who 
got into social media for completely different reasons. Like someone like Paris doesn't need social media, right? She is Paris Hilton. She doesn't, she doesn't make, or she isn't going to be made or broken by her Instagram she account. She kind of invented the model. And by the way, people sense. probably don't know she has like a billion dollar brand. So you could say what you want about her, but at the end of the day, she's an OG her. businesswoman that's Oh, yeah, her. yeah. So, and I don't even know if people know that she has fragrances that, you know. Well, if they watch the American meme, they'll know. They will know. <laughs> but, right. but I don't know if everybody knows that. I don't know if it's common knowledge on how yeah. well she's done in business and, and what an OG she is in business, and I think it's a really good point. But do you think that anybody came across bad or good in that film in terms of their sort of the public's perception of them? I mean, to me, the idea was there's good and bad of each person, and they're just like there is with all of us and myself. You know, there's there's good and there's bad with each person, and each person got into it for a completely different reason and has different a different outcome with it, and has a completely different relationship with social media. Um, and and that's what I found fascinating about having such different characters and different people. People. Um, you know, we wanted it to be real. We wanted it to be something that we're not sugarcoating anything and, and really show, like I said, the inner workings of this world that you that you don't normally get to be a part of. Um, and I think with the four, with, with with the protagonists in this, what I do give them credit for is that they were so raw, they were so vulnerable, and they did share those dark sides, and they did share the negative aspects of their personal life, professional life, because that's real, and that's something that I don't even know if I would be able to do in that, in such a in such a vulnerable and raw way. What's what's Kareel's real name? I know uh, it, his name is Kareel. It is okay, yeah, but so, it, he goes so. by the Slut Whisperer. Right, right. Because I yeah. almost felt like bad for him when I watched that movie. I know him, and I know him a little bit from being out at you know nightclubs and whatnot over yeah. the years and just seeing him photographing everyone. And you almost feel sorry for him a little bit, right? I feel like there's a little bit of a depressing side to that whole life. But look, he's successful in what he does too, but there is that dark side where you watch that and you're like, is that, you know, again, is it an illusion? Is it depressing? Is it... Well, I think, what is it exactly? You know? Yeah, and I think that's what the film's about too. Is that you know there, you, there's a perception all out there that everything's great and these people live these like high flying lives and they're just happy and and everything's happy go lucky and they're famous and they're in the, in this world with everybody and doing what they want to do ultimately. But what I found fascinating is like when people let you in on, on the real part of their life, you're noticing yes, people are extremely lonely. They're depressed. They're not interacting with people. We've kind of lost this whole idea of like perfecting a craft and you know, working on something that you're super passionate about, it becomes this thing where it's, you just want to be relevant. You want to be, and, and and doing all that is great for some of these people. It's really paid off and it, it is an art. It is a skill set, and it, it does take hard work. So I don't want to discount that whatsoever. But what you do notice is that as connected as we all feel as people with our phones, with our social media platforms, we're as lonely and kind of depressed and, um, you know, as ever. And I think that's something like a common misconception is this young generation. And that was a point I wanted to get across was for a younger generation, you're always looking at like the bigger, better thing. Everybody has something else. And what I wanted to show people was, listen, do your own thing. Don't get caught up in what everybody else is doing. Cause it's not always what, what it seems. And, you know, keep your head down, you know, ha do hard work and, and, you know, perfect a craft, be great at something. And it doesn't mean don't, you know, use don't use social media. Social media is a great thing if you use it as a tool, right. if you use it as something. But I think if for a younger generation, it's become something where it's everything. It's their life. It's their social life. It's how they connect. After, after you've sat in this for a long time, yeah. it's been out for a minute, what would part two look like to you today with your headspace on what you saw and what you documented? Well, I'm writing a series on it right now. Uh -huh. So I've, I've been uh, finishing a series that, that, that I've been developing on this. So um, On... 
American meme. Yeah, it'll be the American cool. meme series. Yeah. It's funny because I call Instagram cool. like people's greatest hits life moments, right? You never see like someone totally. brushing their teeth, taking out the trash, having a fight with their girlfriend or wife or boyfriend, whatever it may What's be. What's like the avatar versus the person? Yeah. You and, know, and which one is it? And that's why we even end with a movie with Paris creating this avatar. Because even someone like her, you mm -hmm. know, it's people, most normal people would be like, she's beautiful, she's smart, she's talented, she's driven, she's this OG CEO, a businesswoman, like you were mentioning, Scott. And it was like, why would I ever feel bad for her? And right. the idea was not to like come up for a reason for people to feel bad for Paris Hilton. Mm -hmm. But what you re do realize is she's also in this world where she'll never fully get out of it. She's committed and pot committed in a world where she wants to create a legacy for herself. And, you know, some people wouldn't choose that. She's tr she wants to be iconic. She wants to be timeless. And that was kind of one of the other reasons that we ended the film the way we did, where she's kind of creating an avatar, which was, you know, real and what she's trying to do. Because like she says, she doesn't she wants to be immortal. And so it, it really gets you thinking and talking about like, okay, what, 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 at what cost um, do we do all this for? Right. And I think that was like the, the idea of the conversation. Hopefully everyone could take something else away, uh, a different thing away from the film. And I think each character provides something very unique and different. Um, and like I said, I just give them a lot of props because they were so just real with with the audience and allowed people in and I think it's it would be a shame and a disservice to only show the positive aspects but not show the real aspects which is there is a very dark lonely side to it for each and every one of them no question it's a great film I loved it and, and I Thank actually you. got to see it after you and I had done that interview together but fast forward to the future now Bert and where you're at I know that you've actually been getting involved as an executive producer for some new films like Ophelia you did you worked on and uh, we should talk about Bull and and all the, the latest projects you have going on now. So let's talk about where it is, fast forward. And also one thing we really didn't talk about, which I do want to ask you guys, which seems like a very basic question, but if you're not in this business, it's not that basic. The, the difference between a producer and a director, whether it's raising money as a producer or directing the film being hands-on, tell us everything that goes into th that process and why some films you're just directing and some films you're producing and directing and doing everything from start to finish. Like, How do you choose on which projects you decide to get involved in what capacity? Yeah, the way in which we structure our company is we have two, two setups. One is scripted, one is unscripted. And so we have two different funds, completely different people, different investors, different everything. Ophelia is scripted. Correct. Yeah. So our first scripted film that like, um, so so we have a slate of scripted projects that we've done. One is Ophelia with Daisy Ridley and, and, and Naomi Watts. The other one is a film called Bull, which, um, which I produced that just premiered at the Cannes Film Festival um, and did quite well. And so we just uh, we're about to announce a, a deal with a, with a studio that that picked it up. And uh, and then I have a third film called Human Capital, um, which most likely will be premiering it uh, uh, in the fall kind of festival circuit with Liev Schreiber, Marissa Tomei, Peter Sarsgaard. These are um, all small actors. Yeah, no, they're great actors. We're lucky to lucky to get them. And and I think what what attracted me to this so. Documentaries are, are definitely a passion. There's something I'm going to continue doing. We have a couple documentary series that we're, that I'm directing and developing. Um, and then in the in the in the scripted space, the idea was to find kind of character-driven films. Once again, films that matter um, and and develop projects that we think can also be done at a low cost, but also be commercially viable. And so it's always a fine line. They're very hard to find. And I'm always into story and scripts and character development. And these three projects, you know, definitely had that and, and kind of struck a tone on different audiences. So um, yeah, we're excited about those. And, and as far as like the roles that, that, that we have and what they are, I mean, as a director, obviously, you're 
you're writing, you're, you're, you're doing everything. I think as a producer, that's a, it's a loose term these days in, in our business. It's like some people do absolutely nothing. Right, that's what I, I mean, because I meet a lot yeah. of guys in LA that are quote unquote movie yeah. producers and I'm like, what exactly are you doing on this film? But that's an interesting <laughs> question. I wonder that myself with yeah, people. Yeah, that's never going to change. Yeah, yeah I've wondered that, that with mean? producers I mean, on films that I've done where I'm like, who is this person? Yeah, we never heard do? of them. Yeah. Mm. Did but, they raise $100 or yeah. are they actually doing everything from start to finish? Some, sometimes it's it's a money thing on producers. Sometimes it's strictly, you know, a, a financial thing and they, they want a credit to get, you know, I don't know, to get acclimated into the business. They get a business card that says producer. Yeah, they get a track record, right. so to speak. And then there's, you know, producers who are really doing everything, which is, you know, a lot of what we do, which is everything from nuts to bolt. Like, it, it's everything from developing the script. I mean, as a producer on Bull, for instance, the film we just took out. It and was, tell us the story behind Bull, too. It's a pretty interesting story, too. Yeah, the, the, the script... I initially met the director who's a first time director. I met her at a Sundance lab years ago. And so she had an early version of the script. We've been working on the script for years, like developing it, um, figuring out, you know, we, we do everything from the casting to putting every dollar together to setting up crews and cast and, um, making sure that we have a film that's on budget. I mean, like literally everything you could possibly imagine. So a film like that, um, you know, we, we're very hands-on. And as a producer, when I produce something, it's very hands-on. We are, I'm in the edit room. I'm, in, I'm talking to the director every single day, pretty much. I'm talking to the editors almost every single day. So it's a very different situation. So I don't know what most people consider producers, but in our world, because it's um, under our production company and, and they're, we're usually the lead kind of producing team on whatever project we do, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And it's it's definitely everything you could possibly imagine. Even when it comes to marketing and distributing a film, um, it never ends until the film's like out there. And, and even then, you're working with the publicity team, you're working with a marketing team, you're working with your distributors and thinking outside the box on how to like get, you know, lower budget films out there. So in theory, I could see a collaboration between Patrick and you? And yeah, but I think you just claimed your 10%. <laughs> right. um, we'd like to see that coming up in the future for sure. So the story of Bull again, because it is yeah. a really fascinating story. What's the story Bull, behind it? Bull's basically about a 14-year-old girl, white girl, in, in the outskirts of Houston. Um, and she she basically is kind of grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. No father. Uh, mom's in jail for you know the majority of her life. And she basically is with a group of friends and they vandalize this man's home and the man ends up being like this ex-cowboy um, and he, he was a bull rider, um, you know, in the black rodeo and he was an iconic kind of guy who grew up with his father being an iconic bull rider and he's now in his mid-50s, kind of the complete opposite of this young young woman, and a young girl, and she um, develops this kind of unlikely bond with him. Um, due to him, her vandalizing his home and being caught. And so they create this unlikely bond and it really shows you kind of into this world of like the black rodeo in Texas and also in this thing. Um, a world you don't hear much about. Correct, yeah. And, and if you've seen it like at the PBRs and it's obviously so popular in, in, in middle America, but here we were trying to show um, this relationship between this young this young woman. I think what's interesting is that they're complete opposite people, but they're struggling through the same thing, which is like this this idea of lack of hope in their life. And they're in a very, even though they're complete opposite people, they're dealing with the exact same thing at the exact same time. So, And how do you choose your, uh, let's talk about the documentaries for a moment, because you've done one on EDM, one on boxing, obviously social media. I know you were friendly with Mike Tyson. and, and Yeah, I, I, was in his, guys, I was in Mike's wedding. Wow. So how did yeah. Because you guys both are into uh, Love boxing. boxing. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I Mike's, like UFC how did that come also. about? 
Mike's my guy. I mean, I, I know How do Mike. You meet Mike Tyson. Is it just like, hey, uh, you go up to him at a bar? <laughs> like, you, throw, you certainly you don't want to approach him the wrong way. You know, do you know the first time I met Mike, and he wouldn't even remember this? The very first time I ever met Mike was at Ago on on Melrose, wow. and I was in restaurant. Yeah, yeah, and back in the 2007 time, like that was when all the paparazzi would be at that place. And I went with my parents to that restaurant, just the three of us. And Mike Tyson was sitting across from me. This was like, uh, I want to say like, I can't remember, but between 2005, 2007. And he was sitting across um, from me with a, with, a, with a friend. And I was like, whoa, that's Mike Tyson. It's pretty <laughs> yeah. amazing. And I'm a sports fanatic. And obviously Mike's, you know, probably the most synonymous with, uh, with boxing, especially growing up. And he looked at us and he got up from his table and he just sat at the table with us. Like, no, strangely enough. No, no, no. Pulled up happen? a seat and just sat at the table. He won't even remember the story, actually. And and my parents were like, whoa, do you, like, know Mike Tyson? Because I worked in radio for a long time, so I knew a lot of random, you know, celebrities through that. I didn't really know them that well, but we were definitely acquaintances, and we were cool. And I was like, no, I, I, don't, I don't. And he sits with us, and he's like, I don't really like the people I'm with. And they're all kind of users, and, and, and he sat with us and looked at us and said, like, are you guys like a family? And we were like, yeah. And he's like, well, I can I just sit with you guys wow. for a little that bit? That is the most random yeah. thing no, no, ever. It ever. is. <laughs> I, yeah. And, and that was the very first time I ever met him. And so I we exchanged numbers, but I never, like, even hit him up. I was like, I don't even know if this is real. My parents were like, you're a kid. You're not texting Mike Tyson. Like, <laughs> wow. So it was like one of these, it, it was a very weird story. And then anyway, long story short, years later, I um, I became close with, uh, at the time it was he and his fiance Kiki, and she's amazing. She's a, you know, a producer as well and someone who kind of does everything for him, a great mom and, and, and really helped turn his life around. And he, he's just a, uh, a phenomenal guy. So we started hanging out a lot more. We had a bunch of mutual friends and I would see them and I would come out and kick it at their house uh, in Henderson outside of Vegas. And, you know, when they were here, I, I'd spend time with them. And he and I just created a great bond. And, and there was a, an interesting story about kind of boxing that hadn't been really explored on kind of the um, the rules and regulations and kind of his experience. And, and so we follow him, Evander Holyfield and, and Bernard Hopkins, three guys who kind of uh, – grew up at the exact same time and came up in the in the ranks at the same time but had completely different trajectories and paths and and backgrounds and so we tell the story through the three of them um in a pretty unique way and mike was you know amazing and wanted to share a side of himself that he wasn't able to early on in his first documentary that he did because it was a very different thing um and then yeah we became close and even his wedding i mean he were you like the best man at the wedding well i wasn't the best man but i was in the wedding there was a um it was a surprise wedding. I was actually at their house all day that a surprise day. Surprise wedding? Yeah. Like yeah. he didn't know he was getting married? No, the, that would be great, actually. <laughs> I'm like, what's a surprise wedding? That would be great. Surprise <laughs> to you. If he was smoking enough weed, maybe. Right. But but uh, that day, he it was a surprise wedding for everybody. It was supposed to be his birthday. Oh, okay. And they had everybody over, and it was at the M uh, Resort in, in Henderson. And so they had a you know small group of people, a lot of family and friends that flew in. It was supposed to be this big joint birthday party for he and his wife, his fiance at the time. And what they did was they randomly like opened, they had a cocktail room. Everybody thought it was that. And then literally they pushed down a wall, like it opened up. And then they were literally like, I know that you guys think you're here for a birthday, but this is Mike Tyson's wedding. That's crazy. <laughs> and so, and they're still happily married and, yeah. and, and together. And she is, she's amazing. And Mike's 
fantastic. So it was pretty surreal, you know, sitting up there and no question watching him do his thing. And uh, yeah, we became quite close. And and I, I mean, it's I, I've been the biggest Tyson fan my whole life. So to to be able to learn, he's one of the smartest people I've ever met. And I'm not even kidding. People are shocked when I say that, but he is one of the most well read people you have ever met. Well, Patrick told me he did a one-man show, which I'd heard about, yeah. but Patrick said it was like the greatest thing ever. Yeah, he's eloquent. You have to understand, yeah. this guy never got hit in the head, really, other than like, one, th- other than like one fight. Yeah, that's and, right. And, and that was a fight where he was partying too much, but really there was a couple fights where he really took blows to the head, mm-hmm. but if you think about it, this guy has no brain, like, he not doesn't... Not compared to anyone else, he's hardly none. been hit. No, he hadn't been hit. Yeah. You know, it's not like an Evander situation or guys like that who really took a beating over, you know, 12 rounds every fight. He, this was a guy who's fights ended in you know 90 seconds so most of your movies come from a passion of the subject right so was were you really into edm because what we started is a story of martin garrix and carl cox and david Guetta, who we work with and a bunch of people like that and sort of old school new school edm and is that was that something because you were really interested in electronic dance music or did you just think there was a story to tell there that hadn't been told probably a little bit of both i love all types of music i'm not like the biggest edm fan but i definitely have an appreciation for where different genres come from and i felt like there was a unique story there in the sense that you know martin was really coming up when i first met him and his father he was living in his parents house at the time he was you know basically a bedroom dj who was doing fascinating things by you know downloading equipment online the parents were super supportive i was like wow this is kind of fascinating i've this kid's being like super supported by the parents and he's brilliant and he's making you know hit tracks and getting them out there um before he really broke we that's when we started working together and i felt like what the coolest part with him was he his story hadn't been documented in that type of way and so we juxtaposed him with carl cox who you know as as opposed to someone like martin who's playing pre-recorded sets for an hour on um you know from his bedroom Carl's playing 10-hour sets. Wow. He's been in the business 40 years as a, as a, as a producer, as an artist, as a DJ, um, and was a true pioneer. He's, it's like basically putting Justin Bieber and Bruce Springsteen in a documentary together. <laughs> and it's like, it, it doesn't even make sense. These guys had never met before. Uh, one guy is revered as like the OG, the like no one, everyone in that world worships and loves Carl Cox. And it's interesting because in America, people don't really know much about him. And one guy has like $50 million and one guy has like 500,000. He hadn't at that time, but we started following him. And at that time, Martin started to break and, you know, within a year was making 25, $30 million in a year. Um, He wasn't when we began, you know, following him, he was named the number one DJ in the world on pretty much every single uh, out, you know, media outlet. And he started collaborating with the biggest artists and he was doing, you know, songs for, you know, with David Guetta and doing songs for with Tiesto and like kind of the guys he always looked up to in that industry and then started producing music for everybody from, you know, Bieber to Ed Sheeran to Usher. I mean, you name it. And so um, the idea was to juxtapose two complete opposite people in that in that world. And the uh, there was a lot of EDM films at that time and documentaries. But what I when I was watching them, the reason I wasn't that interested in, in, in them as an audience member was really that's not. I'm not like the biggest fan of that genre. So for me, it was like, okay, what's the appeal here if you're not? And everything felt very promotional about a particular artist or festival Mm or um, everything had an agenda of pushing something. And I was like, what if we made a film? Because I'm an outsider. I really have no, you know, skin in the game or, or horse in the race here. What if we create like an interesting way to tell a story about a booming genre that has a massive effect on, on American culture? 
and and be able to tell that story through two polar opposite characters who had never met before but represent something totally different and interweave their stories. So we tell it in a completely nonlinear way. Um, we tell it in a way that's, you know, very unorthodox and basically juxtapose their stories, like I said, through a guy who, you know, plays 10-hour sets, someone like Carl Cox, without taking a break. I mean, the guy takes one bathroom break, has like a couple slices of pizza and a beer, plays a 10-hour set in Ibiza with people just like never sitting one time. And then Martin, you know, has a different thing. It doesn't mean he's not super talented and hardworking himself, but it's a different generation. So he Carl is, Cox is like the OG godfather of EDM. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then and then Martin has a USB stick and will right. show up at a place and put it in and his stuff's amazing and he made it all and he's he's brilliant. I mean he really is. And that's why I wanted to follow him was that listen, this guy can come in play ninety minutes and get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars and leave. And then this other guy's here 10 hours and, you know, doing everything, like never plays the same song twice, ever. Did you find yourself falling wow. in love with the music genre? Or I did with parts of it. I mean, there's certain parts of it that I that I love and there's certain parts of it that I don't, but I definitely have an I appreciation. I like the energy of it. Yeah. I don't really like it. I just like to see that people are taken to a place. I, you know? I felt very similar to that. Yeah, when I was in there watching the crowds of it, because I've been exposed to it through certain people that are in it. And I just, it's not for me, but then watching that energy rise is oh, yeah. something that you could always identify with. Yeah. I will say, you know, because I also have been very close and worked with Steve Aoki for many years. Steve Aoki is like the kiss of EDM. He's throwing cakes at the audience. He's oh, yeah. crowd surfing. <laughs> I actually find it quite fascinating because a lot of those He's guys, you go worker. see them and, and you go see like a lot of these DJs. And, and as you said, there's there might be a USB stick. They're pumping their fists in the air, but I don't know what, you know, if they're actually doing anything back there. Like, are they actually making music or is it just. Well, it doesn't mean they're not making fists. music at that moment when right. he's throwing a cake at somebody's face. He's obviously not doing something <laughs> well, no, at that I moment. Mean, I mean, that I like the showmanship aspect of what Steve does because I right. come from a rock and roll background where bands would actually put on a show like Kiss, Van Halen, Aerosmith, even the Stones to this day, they're, they put on great shows. And, and it's just a different thing when you go to, like, you know, you, you go to Electric Daisy Festival yeah. or EDC. I mean, it, it's a different experience. It's entertainment. Um, it's and, and like you're saying, he's an entertainer and he's, yeah. it doesn't mean they're not super talented in their own right, no because question. obviously they're making the music that you're listening to. Yeah. They're obviously producing that music. They may not be doing it at that exact moment when you're saying, okay, this guy's pressing a button. What is he doing? There's obviously, but that's what the film kind of explores is like, what are people doing? How is music made in this genre? Because there's a lot of misconceptions and there's a lot of things that people don't know. So the idea was really to, you know, shed light on that in a, in a very unique way with a, you know, unique cast of characters and also do it with the, all the old school and new school. So you have like the OGs and some of the most respected um, artists, you know, and pioneers of that genre. And then you have, you know, the big EDM artists, so to speak, of today, which are, you know, the, today's kind of pop stars. Right. No question. Is there any genre that you haven't done a film about that you're dying to do a documentary about? <clears throat> yes. Um, I'm doing, you know what? I'm open. There's many. There are many. Um, you know, I'm definitely, like I said, we're working on this 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 modeling project, which, which fascinates me. Um, project X, we can't talk about it. Yeah, but we will very soon. <laughs> Um, I think similar to the scripted world, I, I'm, I'm inspired and motivated by things daily, uh, that, that come to mind, things that I haven't thought of. I mean, I love, um, there's many genres that I love. I have a new film that we're going to be doing. Um, you know, we haven't announced it yet, but I'll give you a little thing about it. It's about this like black box that was found that no one, uh, that over 30 years had never been found by these kind of crazy hikers that come across this black box and it ends up solving a... Uh, a mystery and a, and a um, uh, about a plane crash that had never been even looked into in 30 years. Amazing. And yeah, it connects all these families and is, you know, really fascinating. So stuff like that, you know, there's 
there's I'm always inspired storytelling. I'm always in yeah anything that has like a, a strong character arc or a strong story that seems fascinating. I'm into it. Well, there's a part two to our interview about the modeling business because there's something I'm going to show you that I can't talk about either, but it is the future of the fashion modeling business that I'll share with you when we're done off the record. I would love um, it. But uh, part two You're of our interview show me will your continue. avatar? Well, you never know. <laughs> um, but hey, man, this is great. I knew that you guys would have a ton in common. So two great filmmakers. And Bird, I'm super excited for all your projects. So Bull is really the one to watch coming up, right? That's the that's Yeah, the... well, Ophelia will be out actually in two weeks. Okay. Um, it will be in, in theaters on June 28th. Great. Um, Congratulations. Um, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, Daisy Ridley, who it's her you know, first movie um, before Star Wars in, uh, in December. Uh, Naomi Watts, Clive Owen, great cast there. And then uh, the next one will be Bull, as far as a scripted film to watch, um, which we're going to be making an announcement with the studio quite uh, here quite soon that came out of Cannes. And then as far as documentaries, you know, the American meme on Netflix right now, what we started on Netflix right now. Um, and Follow then- Bird on social media. Yeah, you can follow Burt Marcus. Um, it should be interesting since, uh, you know, I have a I have a different thing on social media. Everyone expects this crazy social media thing because I did a film on social media for years. But uh, like, like I said. They want your greatest hits on there too. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not. But that's what makes it more exciting. That's cool. And follow Patrick on social media too. Uh-oh. Well, you know, what's your handle, Patrick? My name. Your name, exactly, yeah. <laughs> which I always pronounce. I always mispronounce. You got it today. I got it today. He's I did, doing I good did. today. You just got to follow right now. Right yeah, there. there you right go. Right now. I'm like Billie Eilish. It's just like happening while I'm on stage. <laughs> right. And Scott Lips, like the new two, Stern. I heard she got like two million followers <laughs> while she was walking out on her first song at Coachella. I wouldn't I wouldn't like doubt crazy. it. She's What's definitely two uh, million additionals. Wow. She's definitely happening at the moment. So, hey, guys, this was uh, very insightful. And for anyone that wants to be a director or producer in the film business, Follow these guys. Follow Bert and all his uh, great movies. And ironically enough, Bert, when I was researching you, I actually had seen most of your movies. I didn't even know that. So that's a sign of a great director because I'd already seen How to Make Money Selling Drugs. I'd seen Teenage Paparazzi. Like, I didn't even know that this was you behind them. But it's amazing to know that when I watched, I had actually already seen all these movies in the last few years. So you're doing something right because I'd already seen half of your movies. So Or maybe more than half. Probably I'd say 70%. So that's great. And uh, American Meme, check it out. The uh, the best film, uh, the best documentary on Netflix this past year, right? Or the best or the most successful? Well, I mean, best is just my best opinion. Best is subjective. <laughs> the most successful. I'd say one of the best for sure. So thanks for coming on, guys. It was great. And uh, Bert, you and I will talk offline. Oh, no doubt. Scott <laughs> Lips, everybody. Thanks, thanks for having us. My name is Zach Selwyn. You may remember me as a host from ESPN, Attack of the Show, or even Immortalized, that competitive taxidermy show on AMC. We lasted one episode. Anyway, three times a week, I'm bringing you the realest fake news of the day. It's the Saturday Night Live News Desk, but in an audible format. Listen to the Audio Up News Network on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Dennis Quaid here, and I want to tell you about The Orange Tree. Now, I have recently started a podcast network called Audio Up, and much as I prepare for movie roles, I've been researching the podcast landscape and listening to hundreds of podcasts. One in particular stopped me in my tracks. The Orange Tree. It's a true crime podcast series told with such authenticity and care by Haley Butler and Tinu Thomas, two journalists who were University of Texas students when they started reporting on the story. It's about the 2005 murder of a young woman named Jennifer Cave near the University of Texas at Austin campus. 
What struck me most was the thorough examination of the case and the exclusive access granted to these two young reporters. What makes this true crime story so unique is their perspective. They're two young women who are the same age as Jennifer Cave and at very similar points in their lives. The Orange Tree is engaging, it's thoughtful, and really, really powerful. Take a listen to The Orange Tree on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts today. Hey, how'd it do, y'all? I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.